Well, feel free to find a seat here, and we'll continue our worship as we look together in God's Word, continuing our series uh, through the book of Romans. You know, as weeks go by, it's, imagine, it's amazing how much can change in the course of a week. Uh, last week, Seth was up here, and, and I was listening to his sermon, and he was talking about how much he disliked the city of Boston, you know, and does anybody dislike Boston this week? Absolutely not. I mean, we, you know, they're, they're nice fellows letting us, you know, go on to the World Series. Uh, now we just don't like Atlanta, and, uh, but what, a, what a, a lot can change in a week, but we're still in the book of Romans. That doesn't change. Every single week we gather together and we look through Scripture and we see what it has to teach us. But as for Boston, as we think about Boston, it reminded me of a story uh, of a time that my wife and I were able to travel to Boston. We went there in 2009, uh, right before our oldest daughter, Julianne, was born, and it was kind of a baby moon, a little getaway to enjoy some time, just her and I together, and uh, get away uh, on a little vacation before we welcomed our oldest child, our first child into the world, and we had a great time walking around Boston. Uh, one of the things we did is, is we love to walk around the city, and it's a great city to walk around. They actually have what's called the Freedom Trail there in Boston. If you ever uh, go to the city, it's a, it's a great thing to do to kind of walk the Freedom Trail and to go from site to site, kind of seeing some of the most important sites in that city that relate to the independence of this country, the, the uh, American Revolution. And uh, we walked that trail. We kind of went and saw some of those sites. And one of the most memorable for me was going to see one building in particular. Whenever I'm in a city that, that we like to go check out, I love looking at the churches. I love walking around, especially when we go to older cities. I like to see some of the older churches in the city. I have a fascination for that. And there's a particular church in Boston that most of you would probably be familiar with. It's called the Old North Church. It was founded in 1723. It's one of the oldest churches uh, in the Americas, and uh, this particular church was in the city of Boston uh, in 1775, and on one night in 1775, two men, uh, Robert Newman and Captain Pulling, snuck into the church, and they had to sneak into it because most of the attendees of this particular church were, royal to the, or were loyal to the British crown, and they snuck into the church, they snuck into the bell tower of the church, and they lighted two lanterns, and they hung them in the bell tower to signal to the writers, Paul Revere, and uh, uh, he, I, forget, I always forget who the second one is. No one remembers the second writer that day. But the two, the two writers then left, and they alerted the militia that the British were coming. The British were coming. And so we went to that church. You couldn't go up into the bell tower, but we could at least uh, stand there in the sanctuary and look at the old uh, pews that were there, the old uh, rectories that were, that were there. And we had a really good time doing that. And I have a fascination, I think as many people do, with the American Revolution and the origin of our country, and it's an exciting thing to think about. But it reminds me of, of one more story of a, of a British evangelist who was coming to the United States, a man by the name of John Guest in the 1960s, and he was coming to the United States to become the pastor of a church in Philadelphia. 
And he flew from England to the city of Philadelphia, and the, the person who had been assigned by the church to kind of show him around the city thought it'd be fun to take uh, Mr. Guest, Reverend Guest, to all of the American Revolution sites. He wanted him to see uh, how we had gained our independence from those British over there. And so he decided he would take him around, and they went and looked at the Independence Hall where the Declaration of Independence was signed. They saw the Liberty Bell. They went to some of the famous battlefields that were around Philadelphia. And Reverend Guest tells a story that, he, you know, he was having a good time learning about, you know, American history and the people that he was going to pastor. And he uh, walked into one particular store. It was an antique store that specialized in American, you know, memorabilia. And as he was kind of looking through the store, he noticed some flags on the wall. And one of those flags, you know, had the, the great no taxation without representation on it. And the next flag over was a flag, you know, that we still see around, especially here in Texas, don't tread on me, you know. And then he looked at the third flag and he kind of stopped in his tracks. It was the most interesting to him. It was a flag that said, we serve no sovereign here. And of course, he noted that because as a British citizen who still lived under the queen, they had a sovereign in England, right? A queen who, who in some way, shape, or form rules over the kingdom. But he stopped in his tracks for another reason. Because he thought to himself, how can I preach about the kingdom of God in a country that has such an antipathy towards sovereignty? That's a particularly American problem, is our antipathy towards anyone ruling over us, right? We serve no sovereign here. The question we're, we're looking to answer today and that Paul is looking to answer in the book of Romans is how do we live in this world? In light of the fact, as he's been explaining to us, that we are no longer under law. How do we live in this world in light of the fact that we are no longer under the dominion of sin? Pastor Seth looked at that question initially last week. Paul's really doing two things here in, in chapter 6. He asks at the, at the very beginning of the chapter, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin and that grace may abound? I mean, he's asking a question. We're, we're, how, how do we live in this new era of grace? Should we just continue in sin so that we can get more and more and more grace? And today he asks that question, that same question again, with just a slight twist to it. With just a slight twist. He says this in Romans chapter 6, 15. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? It's the same question. He's not asking it to say, well, so that we can make more grace happen, right? He's, not, he's, he's left that question behind. Uh, Seth answered that question for us last week. He's asking another question. Well, we're not under grace or not under law. So what, can we just do whatever we want? See, the question that Paul is getting at is the question of autonomy. Can we just do whatever? 
because we're no longer under the law. Can we just do whatever we want because we're no longer under the law? That word autonomy I used intentionally. It's, the, it's, a, it's a combination of two Greek words, auto, which most of you probably know that word, auto. You, you all drove here today in automobiles. It's really self, something that's self-generated, self-moving. An automobile is a self-mobile car. All right, so that, that uh, idea of auto, that word auto is self. And then nomos, from, for the autonomy is the Greek word nomos, is the second word there, which means law. Are you a law unto yourself? Can you just do whatever comes to mind, whatever you want to do? No one can tell me what to do. No taxation without my representation, right? Can we just do whatever we want? You know, this country was founded on... July 4th, 1776, when they signed what? The Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence. There's another word that's a, that has a prefix, in, which means not, or the negation of something, and dependence, dependent, not dependent. The Declaration of Independence was the declaration, we are not dependent anymore on England for our laws. We're independent. Our laws do not depend on some king over in England. And we celebrate Independence Day every year. It's also one of my favorite movies. But we celebrate Independence every day on July 4th, and we contend to associate independence in itself as if that alone is freedom. But biblical freedom is not autonomy, and biblical freedom is not independence. You see, if after their declaration of independence from England, the colonies had simply established a government that was even more despotic, that oppressed its people even more than King George did, would they be free? Of course, they'd still be independent from England. Their laws wouldn't come from some king across the ocean, but would they be free if they had simply put in King George's place some other despotic king, some other terrible ruler who oppressed the people? Of course not. Independence in itself cannot bear the weight of freedom. And neither can you. Even if you could do whatever you wanted, it would not by itself make you free. And I think Paul explains why here in verse 16. Let's look at Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, 
which leads to righteousness. You see, Paul, well, before I get to that, let me make sure I answer the question. (laughs) I left that off the previous slide. Paul says, if we are no longer under law, but under grace, should we continue to sin? By no means. And then he explains himself, and he gives two options here. Two options. There are only two options. You are either You are always going to be ruled by something. The idea that you can be totally and completely in and of yourself autonomous is a lie. Paul does not give that option. You are either obeying sin, which leads to death, or you will obey righteousness. Those are the only two options that Paul gives. There is no third way. Something is ruling over you. Now, the question you might ask at that point is that if something is always ruling over me, can I be free? How can I be free if something always rules me? And it's in that question that we desperately need a biblical definition of freedom. You remember one of the greatest stories of liberation found anywhere is a story that we find in the second book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus. Whenever you go to to anywhere and, and they start talking about freedom, oftentimes you will hear some kind of reference to the Jews being liberated from their, their, their slavery in Egypt. It's a great story about the liberation of individuals, a, a whole nation that had been reduced to a condition of slavery to a powerful king who ruled over them with an iron fist and dictated every aspect of their lives. It's the great story of their being set free from that condition. But as we think of that story, one of the things that's often left out is what they were set free to. What were they set free to do? They come out under the rule, from under the rule of Pharaoh to what? When we look back at the book of Exodus, we see that God gives a specific purpose for His freedom, a specific purpose for His freedom. When He sends Moses into the throne room of Pharaoh to command Pharaoh to let His people go, this is what He says, you shall, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. See, God has set them free from under the thumb of Pharaoh for a purpose, to do something. And it's with that understanding that we can understand something that the Apostle Peter says in his first epistle. 
The Apostle Peter, writing to Christians in the first century, tells them this. He says this, live as free people, as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. How do those two go together? Live as free people. Live as servants to God. The word there in the Greek, the word there for servants, lest we think this is just some kind of, you know, involuntary, our voluntary servitude, and you kind of can take it or leave it, is the same word for slave. As a matter of fact, many translations translate it as slave. Live as free people, live as slaves to God. How does that work? So there are two options. You can either be a slave to sin and death or a slave to God. How does that work? Where is freedom in slavery? How can we be slaves and servants to God yet remain free? Well, maybe we'll remind, remind ourselves of the words of Jesus when he was talking to his disciples in the book of John, and where he says this, in John chapter 30, or 7, chapter 8, I'm sorry, chapter, verses 31 through 32, he says this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And in John 14, 6, just in case there was any doubt what the truth is, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The truth sets us free. The truth is related to freedom. It's the cause of freedom. Well, how does that work? I think it's so important that we understand how this operates to set us free, to understand what it means to live out in freedom. We have to understand how the Bible understands the way we think and the way we act to understand how truth can set us free, can truly make us free. In the past, I've, I've frequently pointed us or people at this church to Proverbs Chapter 2, verses 6. I think it's a great verse to help you understand what it means to know the truth and to, and to use the truth. And in that verse, Solomon says this. This is very important. The Lord gives wisdom. The Lord gives wisdom. As a matter of fact, if you go to the Apostle James in the book of James, he's clear to tell us that God gives wisdom to any who asks. It's God's to give, and he gives it to those who ask of him. But here we read, the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. How do those three words relate together? What is wisdom, what is knowledge, and what is 
understanding. All of these words relate together. They're different words. They mean different things, but they are closely related together. And let's talk about each one of them. The first one is knowledge. Knowledge is discrete facts, the, the truth of the matter, the, the, the discrete facts that you understand, okay? So, you, as you go through life, you become aware of different elements of knowledge all throughout your life. And you can, you can master different topics in school. You can become knowledgeable about, you know, a different uh, science or, or a career field or all kinds of different things. You can become knowledgeable. There are all kinds of different things you can become knowledgeable about. But understanding is, is a step above knowledge because although we can become aware of all kinds of different facts that, that are part of our daily life, understanding is, is something completely different but related because it's how all those facts actually fit together, how they relate to one another. A way to think about this is, is you know, perhaps you go and, and you um, find a, a book that you haven't read yet and you open it up to any page in the book and you read that page. Well, now you have some knowledge about what's in that book. But if you just picked it up at random and you read a random page in that book, would you have any understanding of what you just read? Probably not. Because the whole point of a book that you pick up is that all of these words are placed together in a particular order, and as you read the whole thing from beginning to end, you gain an understanding about how it all fits together. It's a story. And so you can have knowledge about all kinds of things in this world, but if you don't understand how they all fit together, what, what is it worth? What has it done for you? To become the master of trivia of things you don't understand. So what the, the Solomon is saying here is that God gives us knowledge. God gives us understanding also. How all those things fit together. Why? So that we can have wisdom. And wisdom is a little bit different than both knowledge and understanding because it's how we are to act in this world. If you don't have understanding of the way the world works, how do you know how to live in it? How can you possibly understand what you are to do in this world if you don't understand what's going on? You can't. But God gives us the truth. He gives us the knowledge about what's going on he gives us the understanding about how it all fits together so that we might have wisdom. And when we have wisdom, we are free. We're free. The entire book of Romans up to this point has been Paul laboring to give us the essential knowledge we need to know who God is who we are in our sin, what God has done by sending Christ, and what He's accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then what you should do about it, how you should respond 
Paul has been laboring to set us free, to give us wisdom about how we respond in this world. We should serve Him, knowing who Christ is, knowing He's our King. We should put our faith in Him, and we should serve Him. And that's wisdom, and that's freedom. Biblical freedom is knowledge and obedience to truth and goodness. To truth and goodness. And who is truth? And who is good? But God Himself and His Son. And God has shown that to us. And because He has shown us the truth, He has set us free. And so we're going to serve somebody. We're either going to serve the lies of this world or we're going to serve the truth that God has given to us. Those are the only two options. And only one makes us free. So as we continue in Romans, we read it next in uh, verse 16 and 17, or sorry, 17 and 18, these words. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. See, all of us, every one of us, were formerly foolish people. Maybe we were without knowledge. Maybe we didn't know who we really were. Maybe we didn't understand the depths of our sin. Maybe we, we didn't really know who God was. Maybe we hadn't seen Him clearly, or we had been taught differently growing up about who God was, or perhaps that there wasn't even a God. Maybe we had never heard of Jesus. Maybe we just lacked understanding. We had heard all these things. We had grown up in the church all of our lives but we just didn't really get how it all fit together. Maybe we were without understanding. But all of us were foolish. Whatever the problem was, whether it was our lack of knowledge or our lack of understanding, it resulted in foolish living. We were slaves to our foolishness, to this li- the lies under which we lived. But thanks be to God. What I want you to get out of these verses is that phrase. But thanks be to God. You see, at the end of the day, biblical freedom is the sovereign act of God. God is the one who grants freedom. I've already mentioned that God is the one who gives wisdom. And because God is the one who gives wisdom, He is the one who makes us free. In our culture, we tend to be relatively casual about dropping God's name. Maybe you've done this before. Maybe you were driving around a parking lot at the mall and a space opened up and you're like, oh, thank God, it's finally open. All right. Maybe you said that phrase casually time and time again. We, happen to, we tend to do that in our culture. 
It's not a good thing. We should be more careful with using God's name. Paul would not have had that problem. He was a Jew. He had been trained from birth to revere God's name and only use it when he meant it. He would not have dropped God's name in casual conversation, and he certainly wouldn't have written a letter in which he just said, you know, just thank God for this, you know, as if he didn't really mean it. Paul uses this phrase here very deliberately. And whenever Paul thanks God in any of his epistles, we should take it seriously. I take note of it every time I read something that Paul says, thank God for this. I thank God for this. And so what is Paul thanking God for here? What is he actually thanking God for? That these individuals who were once ignorant and foolish like us, God has given them truth and he has changed them. He has put the truth in their hearts and he has made them obedient from the heart to the teaching they've been given. It's the act of God. And I can guarantee you it is the answer to Paul's prayers. See, Paul believes that when he prays to God for something, God can grant it. And I'll guarantee you he had prayed for these Roman believers, and when he saw the fruit, when he saw their obedience, he knew who had granted his request, and he thanked God for it. You'll read statements like this in virtually every letter that Paul writes. Go look at it. Go look at his, his epistle to the Corinthians. Go look at his epistle to the Ephesians, his epistle to the Philippians. In each one of those epistles, he thanks God for something. Go read those and take notes. I want to point you to the book of the, his book to the Thessalonians. I think this is where this doctrine is taught most clearly. This is the sovereign act of God to do this. Look, at, look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2. This is the first thing he says to the Thessalonian believers. He says this, we give thanks to God always, always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There, there's got to be a sense in Paul's mind when he goes around preaching this gospel that it's almost a shock to him when people actually believe it, right? Here he is, one of the first Christians going from place to place, many of which are hostile to what he has to say, and yet he goes to all these places, and in each of these places, he, people hear him, and they believe. And he has this profound sense of thankfulness to God for doing it. He continues in, in verse he says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Why? Why does He know that He's chosen them? Because our gospel came to you, not only in words, 
You see, sometimes we can go and we can preach something or we can say something, and there's a blank look on the other side. It means nothing to that person. But here Paul says, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. Paul continues in the next chapter, in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, he says this, one more time, he says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you believers. See, Paul knows that freedom is a gift granted by God who gives truth, who opens the eyes of men to who He is and to how they should live. And because it's the work of God, biblical freedom bears fruit. Biblical freedom bears fruit. Several of you may remember that uh, we recently went through an I Am series here at C3, and Chris Henson, who preached uh, in that series through John chapter 15, did an amazing job of describing how Jesus is the vine in John chapter 15. And if we abide in Christ, we will bear much fruit. We will bear much fruit. Because it's God's work, He bears fruit through those who believe. And that's what we read here in verses uh, 19 through 22. Let's take a look at that in chapter 6. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Now, what does Paul mean in that phrase there? What he's saying is that, look, I'm not really talking about some master that's outside of you, whipping you and forcing you to obey sin. That's not what's going on here. I'm speaking to you in human terms in that way, talking about masters and their servants, because I'm trying to help you understand using some external uh, analogy what's really going on inside of you internally. This isn't about something outside of you that's forcing you to live a certain way or do a certain thing. This is an internal spiritual truth that you need to understand. Okay? It isn't the impurity out there. It's the impurity inside of you. That's the problem. And so then he goes on after he says, talks about the natural limitations. He says, for just as you once presented, you did this. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. See, what's going on here, it's not something external to you, forcing you to do these things. It's the sin inside of you, your own desires that are dragging you away that are forcing you to live in these, in these various ways. And Paul says, stop. Stop doing that. Stop presenting yourself to these, these earthly desires, these fleshly desires. Instead, present yourselves as slaves to righteousness, 
leading to sanctification. And he gives the reason why we are to do this in the very next section of verses. In 20 through 22, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Okay? You didn't have to, you didn't care about righteousness. Righteousness what? I just want to do what I want to do. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Now you know. Now you know that all that foolishness that you were engaged in leads to what? For the end of those things is death. Now you know. You've been set free. You know where that leads. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now you know. Now you know. You're free to do what's right. You're free to do good. The importance of understanding freedom in this way is so important in our world. Take a look at the world around you. Take a look at the world around you. It is a constant battle, group against group, person against person, each of them fighting and jockeying, battling for power in this world. That's all that's going on. One group Maybe it's the group you identify with on the right saying, we should be the ones in power. Another group, maybe it's the group that you identify with says, no, we should be. Listen to us. Fight with us. Are you part of the oppressor class or are you part of the oppressed class? Are you part of this group that, that needs to protect its rights against this group or, or what? Which group are you in? That's the, what the world is all about is fighting over this small, limited pie and seeing who can get the bigger share. And you're only free if you're on the top. And you'll never be on the top. You'll never be free. But biblical freedom is for everyone. Biblical freedom is for everyone. It says there is no pie. There is no limit. There's only God who is eternal, who is infinite, who can bless forever and ever and ever. When you look at Titus, the book of Titus, Paul writes in Titus chapter 2 to Titus, and he tells Titus to instruct the church in righteousness. And as he's telling Titus to instruct the church, he gives instructions to Titus on how he should instruct the church. And he he lists a whole bunch of groups that are important here. In Titus chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Old men are to be sober and dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. And then he addresses another group. 
older women are likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Then he talks about young women, and he gives instructions to young women and how they should live. And then he goes on and he gives instructions to young men and, and how young men should live in this world. And then he goes on and he gives instructions not only to the older men, the younger men, the older women, and the younger women. Then he gives instructions to another class of individuals, bond servants, the slaves of the household. And he says, this is how they should conduct themselves. This is how they should live in this life. And he does that going through each one of these groups. And he says this in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, everyone, no matter what your situation is, no matter what your station in life, you can live wisely. You can be free. It's not about you jockeying for control with other groups in this world. It's about living free, living for God in this world. And if you can do that, then you are free. Then you are free. That's freedom. If you think freedom in this world is related to your position of power in this world or your position of success in this world, you will never be free. But if you live in this world to serve God wisely, you can always be free no matter your condition in life. Biblical freedom is for everyone. And finally, biblical freedom is irresistible. One of the most difficult doctrines, I think, to teach sometimes is the doctrine of what we call irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. It's the doctrine that, that explains that when God chooses to save someone, He does it through irresistible means. He accomplishes it. He cannot be thwarted in His goal of saving an individual. And the question that arises from that difficult doctrine sometimes is, you mean, is the person asking, you mean I can't say no? I can't, does it make me some kind of robot if God's just going to take control of me in this way and, and make me make a choice for Him? How does that work? Where is my freedom in that? But a good understanding of biblical freedom shows that's not really an argument. That's not really an objection. Because the way God does it is He shows you who He is. He shows you the truth about who He is. And when you see Him for who He is, when you understand the truth, your desires change. It's like the old hymn that, that we used to sing, sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and then the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Your desires change. When you see Him, you are changed. It's irresistible because He's irresistible. When you understand the truth, then it becomes irresistible. And that's why Paul concludes here in this section in verse 23 with the truth of the matter, of why we serve God, because for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God, of serving Him, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We serve a sovereign here. And we're free because we do. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we serve you. We serve you because you are good. We serve you because you are the truth. To know you, Lord, is to truly desire to serve you. And I know, Lord, that as we preach this, even today, there are those who who don't see clearly who you are. Maybe here in this room, but certainly in the world around us. Lord, and I pray that you will reveal your truth to them through us. Lord, we pray for the privilege to be the ones to serve you by declaring your goodness and your truth to the world around you, to set men and women free. We thank you for the opportunity to serve you in that way. We pray that you'll give us the courage to do so. In your name we pray. Amen.